The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, grappling with reading and misreading Shakespeare, says scholar Ian Smith, goes back as far as the publication of his collected works. Smith cites as evidence the preface to the first folio of 1623, published 400 years ago this year, which is addressed to the great variety of readers, noting that the book sales will be tied to the diverse capacities of the potential consumers. Diverse Diverse capacities, different levels of literacy, different reading skills, and we might say today, different approaches, the narrow and the broad, or different people with different prejudices and predilections. Shakespeare is read by novices and experts, by actors and amateurs, by doctorates and dilettantes. Students who find it transcendent and students who are dragged to Shakespeare against their will and hate every moment. Who reads Shakespeare and how? What do we mean by reading competence? We mean basic literacy, of course, and familiarity with Elizabethan diction, or at least the patience and willingness to explore it. And as Ian Smith points out, we mean a racial literacy, too. Just as Shakespeare on love or jealousy or friendship is not writing the simplest renditions of them, but something far more complex— Shakespeare on humans is not limited to those whose skin color matched his own. In Shakespeare's time, the presence of blackness had entered the lives of white Europeans through trade, travel and exploration, immigration, and in the theater. Just as our readings of Shakespeare benefit from a mind sensitive to issues of religion and gender and class, so too with race. And yet, for centuries, Shakespeare's greatest scholars have missed this, erasing the blackness from the texts and their consideration of them. As Smith says, quote, The fact of blackness in Shakespeare's world and work is sufficient to claim his considerable investment in race is more far-reaching and complex than we have historically been prepared to acknowledge. The crucial question thus remains, how have scholars, as readers, adjusted to the evidence of Shakespeare's racial interests? End quote. What can we learn about Shakespeare by looking at the way his readers have considered or failed to consider the issue of race? And what can we learn about ourselves? Ian Smith on Black Shakespeare, Reading and Misreading Race, today on The History of Literature. <laughs> Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. It's good to have you here today. Thank you for joining us. Professor Ian Smith is here of Lafayette College. We will have that soon as our main course and another dessert for you today in the way of a My Last Book. This time we're going to hear from a pair of guests, David Castillo and William Eggington, who, as you may recall, were here to discuss their book, What Would Cervantes Do? Navigating Post-Truth with Spanish Baroque Literature. Cervantes and Shakespeare are almost like literary twins in some ways, dominant in their field, in their genre, instrumental in their respective languages, and nearly exact contemporaries. One imagines them today in literary heaven, enjoying a game of pickleball, maybe. 
<laughs> whatever they're doing. And now today, the twins are joined once again on the History of Literature podcast, in a way. In a way. We'll see if David and William choose Cervantes or Shakespeare for the last book they will ever read. And if not, what they would like to read instead. But first, let's hear some literary news. Crime writer Anne Perry died recently at the age of 84. There's a kind of storytelling cliche about a romance novelist who herself falls in love or who wants to but can't, or a detective writer swept up in an actual hard-boiled caper, or a mystery writer who solves murders, a la Jessica Fletcher, or maybe is tempted to commit one. And then there's the very unusual case of Anne Perry who murdered her friend's mother as a teenager and then hid her identity and went on to have an enormously successful career as a writer of dozens of mysteries that collectively sold more than 25 million copies around the world. I was guilty, she said when her past was discovered and revealed. I did my time. Why can't I be judged for who I am now, not what I was then? What she was then was a 15-year-old girl named Juliet Holm, living in New Zealand, who was in an obsessive friendship with a girl named Pauline Parker, which led to the pair of them bludgeoning Parker's mother to death. This was depicted in Peter Jackson's movie, Heavenly Creatures, with Kate Winslet playing the part of Juliet Holm. In real life, after being convicted of murder and serving a few years in jail, Holm changed her name to Anne Perry, became a Mormon, and moved to a small town in Scotland. She concealed her past for decades, spending the bulk of her life as one of the world's leading crime novelists, publishing 40 books, most of them about murders, without anyone knowing that the author knew the topic from first-hand experience. A brick in a stocking had been her weapon as a 15-year-old. It was horrible. It seems so unfair, she said, when Peter Jackson's movie had led a journalist to reveal her identity. Everything I had worked to achieve as a decent member of society was threatened. All I could think of was that my life would fall apart and it might kill my mother. It might kill my mother. The news. Now, that's a certainly an interesting thought to flash into one's mind. The novelist Anne Perry would not have missed the nicety of that phrase coming into her mind, and maybe the invented person Anne Perry or Juliet Holm or whoever it was who delivered the phrase didn't miss it either. Anne Perry, resting in peace, one hopes, as we hope for all souls, troubled and untroubled alike. We will be back with Professor Ian Smith, talking about his book, Black Shakespeare, after this. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet 
podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Ian Smith, Vice President of the Shakespeare Association of America and Professor in the Humanities at Lafayette College. He's here today to discuss his book, Black Shakespeare, Reading and Misreading Race. Ian Smith, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. So the book is about Shakespeare, but it's also about us, how readers and theater goers throughout the centuries have approached Shakespeare from a position of whiteness and how that has affected their interpretations and experience and what all that means. Uh, is that a fair characterization of the book? Yes. I, I do agree. The book is really, uh, as the title I think suggests, it, it wants to talk about a, a sort of tension, if you will. That is to say, on the one hand, uh, we often think of Shakespeare as a, a sort of great literary figure, and more often than not, with Shakespeare is enshrined within a kind of within elite culture, and uh, is typically sort of seen as belonging to a kind of white elite culture. In fact. And what I'm suggesting in this, in this book is that if we think about the sort of history of Shakespeare's own time, that Shakespeare was confronting and dealing with issues of race in his time, and that we have elided those issues over the past 400 years in the process of making him a certain kind of literary figure in terms of the reception that we have made around him. And so I think that what is fascinating for me is to then talk about not just the the fact that Shakespeare is dealing with these questions of race in his own time, but to probe more deeply and more carefully the question about our reception yeah. and what we're willing to do or not do and how we're willing to open ourselves up to these other possibilities that for so long I think we have closed ourselves off to. Mm, right. Okay, so I'm interested in this because Shakespeare is where I like to think I've stretched my mind to its fullest capacity and and I'm interested in what I may have missed by coming in with this kind of blindness or this this cultural inheritance that I've had in and how Shakespeare has been interpreted over the centuries and so anything that can expand that experience is welcome to me but I don't want to get too far ahead of the audience who might not have had the benefit of reading your book the way I have. So let's talk about systemic whiteness. And in particular, I'm kind of interested in this being broader than just literature and how to read it, but but in basically where this comes from and what factors go into creating the kind of people who are sitting down to read Shakespeare. Let me define systemic whiteness in, in a very sort of, hopefully, 
concise way first, and then I'll try to expand on what that means. That's okay. okay. The term refers to, in general, as of the principal role that whiteness has played in the formation, I would say, and operation of our social and cultural institutions. Mm-hmm. Now, what, let me break that down. What does that mean? Systemic whiteness is a way of talking about the systems in our culture. And by systems, I mean the educational system, the religious system, the economic system, the legal system, medical and healthcare systems, all those things that are central to the shaping and construction and really perpetuation of a society. All those systems historically have been codified as white in the United States. Mm-hmm. Let's take, for example, the Congress of 1790, and I discussed this briefly in the book, declared that all free white persons who met residence requirements shall be entitled the rights of citizenship. So there you have one of our most powerful institutions, Congress, declaring what it is to be an American. And whiteness is the denominator. Whiteness is that thing that defines who is an American. One couldn't ask for a more sort of obvious and prominent idea of what the sort of institution of whiteness looks like than an example like this. But then we see that continuing in so many ways, right? That if we look, for example, a recent book by Heather McGee, in which it's called The Sum of Us, in which she talks, for example, about the impact of, let's say, the GI Bill from 1944 and how that bill affected, for example, education, that veterans, uh, the GI Bill allowed those who observed to have access to a college education. And yet there was an intent to allow white applicants for the bill to have that college education and to steer the non-white applicants, in particular black applicants, to vocational training. Same thing with regard to mortgages. So four out of five of every GRB white applicant was able to get the mortgage. Only two out of five Hispanic and black applicants got that. Now, now why am I talking about this? Housing, of course, and education are significant factors in economic development access in the United States. And if, in fact, those opportunities were denied you, then it means that you're going to be part of those who are somewhat left behind, and a gap will open up. And that's exactly what happened. The GI Bill proved very successful in creating a white middle class and a very strong white middle class, too. And so the opposite happened, whereas blacks were denied those opportunities and Hispanics were denied those opportunities of accessing that kind of middle-class opportunity as well. And so when we talk about institutional factors, I think about elements like that, and then they go on. But at some point, it seems as if, oh, that's how things are that certain people don't achieve economically, certain people don't achieve socially and culturally, and others do. So it creates a kind of implicit and explicit bias. It it creates a a sort of expectations, and it it naturalizes the sense of 
inferiority, lack of opportunity, lack of access, lack of achievement. It makes those things seem natural, and that is highly problematic. And mm. so this is why I want to talk about systemic whiteness. So in terms of what does it mean for literature, I could see where that kind of uh, legacy and that kind of attitude, it would lead to fewer Black professors, fewer Black college students, fewer Black authors, uh, publishers less willing to publish Black writers, and so on. Is that kind of what you see as its impact on literature? The impact that I'm speaking about in particular now in this book, in addition to the ones that you have raised, has to do with what I call a white epistemology. That may have had to do with privileging a certain kind of white identity in the country. The impact of that is not only on persons who identify as white, that impact is on everybody. That is to say, whites and non-whites develop as well this conditioning that is derived from being in a culture in which institutionally everything is oriented in a particular way. Mm. The book is about a way of thinking that is a result of a series of socio-historical processes. Right. And so that white epistemology that I'm suggesting is important not just as a historical fact, but it's important because in, in literature and reading, then it means that we tend to process the way we interpret with this white epistemology in place. So as a result of that, there is a kind of blockage, there's a kind of what I call blind spots, racial blind spots, that are there for us in texts where we, where we don't see those sort of racial moments, right? We began by talking about, in Shakespeare's time, Shakespeare was well aware of racial questions, etc. But we have, over time, elided those. Well, we have elided them because of those racial blind spots. We, we no longer see them because we've been conditioned through a series of socio-historical processes to not see them. Mm. Okay, so maybe we should talk about uh, Shakespeare and his world and the kind of the diversity that was there or the, the racial questions that were there that we have elided. Uh, yes. So what, what kind of world was, was Shakespeare living in in Elizabethan England, and how would you characterize it in terms of the, the different races that he was exposed to and writing about? The world that Shakespeare was living in, I think, is important for us to grapple with with regard to uh, several factors. One of the key ones to my way of thinking has to do with this opening up of Europe to the rest of the world during the 16th and 17th centuries in particular. That is to say, international trade, overseas trade, was something that England started to really get involved in during that period of time. Mm. Other European countries had started before, up to 200 or so years before, but England came late to the game. But having come late, there was this sort of impact, if you like, meeting other people from other places and seeing these people from other places and having those people come to England and also have certain kinds of jobs. Now, on the one hand, when I say meeting other people, these were not necessarily under just conditions of let's meet and make friends. This was about trade and commerce, etc. So we have already this kind of uh, slippage, if you like, between 
meeting the people, but I'm more interested in the things that you have that I want, right? So the people are not so much the value there, it's the things that are valued. Mm. So already there's a sort of possible who gets valued and what gets valued that is in play. This the beginning of this sort of cultural exchange and the sort of economic and commercial exchange that brought England into this sort of wider sphere and awareness of the rest of the world. And scholars have also done work, as I alluded to earlier, on the presence of blacks in England doing various kinds of jobs um, that we had not thought about before. Uh, blacks doing, uh, blacks are musicians, but blacks worked in the field of, of sort of maritime, that they were sort of experts around maritime um, experiences as well. So they had, and some of them were brought as translators as well to England, and that was happening from the early 16th century, and a host of other sort of local employment. So the argument has been, and this is the, in the more recent scholarship, that Shakespeare did encounter black people, people from the African diaspora in England. So this was not something that is unusual. And of course, this makes sense because Shakespeare and other playwrights are writing about Africans. And so it's not as if they just simply got up one morning and said, oh, I'm going to write about black people, right? <laughs> There's a sense and a reason why that would be so in, in a material sense. So for all those reasons, I think we have not been very good at historically of understanding that these issues were real for Shakespeare. And I would like to add one more thing, that reading as well, because people wrote about their travels, when Englishmen and other Europeans went abroad and traveled in other places, then reading was also a site for another kind of encounter with other non-European people. And one could argue that that was one of the, the sort of most expansive ways in which the sort of English person could do that, because not every English person traveled overseas, etc. And of course, Shakespeare's theater and the theater of his time, by staging plays with people, brought this kind of encounter as well in the theater to your, your sort of local audience within England as well. Do you think Shakespeare was exhibiting these blind spots when he was writing his plays? Or do you think that basically the people who have followed are overlooking what Shakespeare is just putting in naturally? And it's the blind spots have come afterwards when we've chosen what to focus on and what not to. My argument is that the blind spots, in terms of the way I've defined it, the blind spots are ours, mm -hmm. not his. And I think that he is working with, as, a, as any artist or a playwright might do, he's working with the material that he has. Now, if by blind spots you mean, did he understand or misunderstand some racial things? That is true, I think, and might well be true of any kind of creative artist now or then. Mm -hmm. What I'm talking about is when he, in fact, is working with those materials, when he in fact has presented those things for us to consider and contemplate, over a period of time, that has become something that is almost invisible. And what scholars in early modern critical race studies or pre-modern critical race studies have been doing for the last 30 or so years, have been trying to recreate a sense of visibility. I've been trying to call attention to our capacity to try to see 
and, and these are my terms. I'm not suggesting other people describe them that way. Mm-hmm. But to, to help us to see what's there, right? Because the blind spot notion right, that I'm working with here suggests it's a metaphor applied to critical theory that comes from what happens in the, the eyes, physiologically speaking, right? It, uh, we have blind spots in our eyes that are just naturally there. And so what the brain does, this is a working theory, is that the brain then fills in mm-hmm. those blind spots based on prior experience. And so the metaphorical value for that in critical theory is we have these sort of racial blind spots and our brains fill in based on our white epistemological previous experience, right? It fills in those spots with that white epistemology and therefore we really don't see the racial material that's there. That's the argument that I'm making. And so for me, Shakespeare is in fact working through a whole host of materials. This is not to suggest that he gets them perfectly right or any of that sort of notion or that he gets them wrong either. That's not the point. The point is that the materials are there and we can then work through them and come to some understanding of how we want to make those analyses. But to not even recognize that they're there, to not even acknowledge that they're there, is in fact missing out on a good deal of what the playwright is doing in these works, of what not just he was exposed to, but the culture of his time, how they thought, what they what they were doing. Hmm. Okay, let's take a quick break and then come back and talk more about the lessons we might learn from reading once we're aware of these blind spots. Okay, we are back. So we've talked about the blind spots and how it might help us to miss things that Shakespeare's texts could have to offer if we are only uh, aware enough to see them. Are there any examples that you could point to that would help us kind of understand what types of things you're talking about that are that's in Shakespeare that has often uh, goes overlooked? In the book, what I've done is I've looked at three plays. And I've chosen three very well-known plays deliberately mm-hmm. in order to prove the point. That is to say, these are plays that have been written on extensively for hundreds of years. And these are plays that people uh, feel that they know very well. And yet, I'm arguing that there are elements that, the critical elements that we miss because we don't bring the sort of racial awareness. We don't bring the sort of racial knowledge that we should, uh, or what I really call in the book, this racial literacy, to these texts. And instead, we sort of uh, are closed off, as I said before, from some of those meanings. So, for example, The Merchant of Venice is the one perhaps that's easiest in one sense to illustrate what I'm getting at. In the book, I made the argument that in The Merchant of Venice, the, the phrase pound of flesh is one that it has become sort of, you know, culturally ubiquitous, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's on TV all the time. It's in movies. It's in films. Right. People use it as a, as a kind of phrase in English these days, right? And yet, when we go back to the play itself, at the critical moment in, in Act 1, Scene 3, when the, the, the deal is being struck with Shiloh, and Bassanio and Antonio, the contract that is being drawn up, it specifically says a pound of fair flesh, not a pound of flesh. Mm. And so 
in part what we miss out on by just circulating this notion of the pound of flesh, which is also there in the play, but what we miss out on at that critical moment when the actual bond, the contract is being made, is that the fair flesh and the word fair uh, in early modern period means several things among them, but I think they're all complementary. Among them, meaning white mm-hmm. or beautiful, right? And it is not coincidental in the early modern epistemology that whiteness and beauty are coincident. That's obvious, right? That, that those two things go together as normal in their mind. And so when the text says the pound of fair flesh, then once we recognize that for so long we have not seen that, yeah. And it's right there on the page. But we've just elided that because for any number of reasons, we have failed to recognize the racial value of that or we've failed to interpret or, dare I say, want to interpret the racial value of that. Then that goes out the door. Now, once we factor that back in, we begin to see a very different play. That is to say, the play is as commonly discussed, right? A play about a contrast and a contest of religions, right? Shylock, who is a Jewish man, and Antonia and the others in the city who are Christians. And so there's a sort of conflict that emerges that ends up in the courts. And that's there, and that's true. What I think we miss out on then, if you don't see that, is why is it then that Shakespeare has uh, a black prince from Morocco appear in Act 2, Scene 1. What is he doing there? And why is he talking about his blackness? How do we connect that to the play in some real sense? Well, it begins to make sense when we understand that it's not just about religion, that the play is about race in the sense that we typically think of race today, which is about skin and skin color. Hmm. And that Antonio's whiteness, which is the pound of flesh that's being referred to, the pound of fair flesh, his whiteness, and let's say Morocco's blackness, so that we can imagine that the play is asking us to think about Antonio's whiteness in conjunction with Morocco's blackness, and to begin to see that the play is more than just about religion in some narrow sense but that the play is about race and a sort of contest of sort of racial ideas and what race is more valued and valuable than the other. All that is being played out. And I would go so far as to say that what is also interesting is Charlotte is a Jewish person now, is in this peculiar position as somebody who has fair skin too but that the prejudice against him as a Jewish man disallows his fair skin from being counted or valued Mm. in that culture. So now there's a two-tier system, if you like. There's a kind of, you know, we see what colorism in the United States. There's There's a kind of white colorism, if you like, in play here, where Shylock's whiteness, his fairness, is somehow deemed different from the whiteness and fairness of the Christians. And so that's what we begin to see that's happening when we bring all the elements together, the religious and the racial together, and what that means. 
And I'll close on this, that if we understand that in the period that Jews were not allowed to own property, then when Charlotte makes this deal and effectively asks for the pound of flesh if there's a default on the loan, he is making a statement, one could argue, about whiteness and owning whiteness as property, literally in the pound of flesh, but also a kind of an argument about his own self-ownership and his own valuing of himself as somebody with fair skin in the culture. And if we read the plane that way, I think there's something very modern about that, insofar as people have done various studies on how the Irish became white or how the Jews became white, meaning, of course, that in the culture of the United States, in the 19th century and the early 20th century and the mid-20th century, assimilation and immigration proved to be very tricky, to go back to some of the earlier points you were making, right? That Congress indeed had these laws about who could be admitted now as an immigrant and therefore citizen based on, again, this whiteness rule. And so the idea that one could discriminate among various kinds of whiteness is legally, but more importantly, culturally, right, became an issue. And so this play is dealing with a similar kind of thing that I think if we were to explore that in the classroom or to explore that as readers or to explore it in the theater, I think could be quite powerful and resonant. So a pound of flesh is, the way to understand it is that fair flesh would have been viewed as more valuable and and that the fair flesh, meaning the white flesh, would be even more extreme to extract a pound of that flesh than the, I guess, black flesh. And Shylock is in the position of saying, well, look, you're not even accepting my fair flesh as being as valuable as yours. So what does that say, too? And and I guess what you're saying is all of this, if if anyone is to think that this is unimportant or or just casual or or an insignificant reference, only needs to look at the fact that we don't even use the word fair when we're quoting this, and we've completely elided that into a pound of flesh instead of a pound of fair flesh, which is there, just suggests that there's a lot of uh, cultural blindness that goes into our interpretation of a work like this that we don't even see that word. Yes, that, that is exactly the, the point. You talk about cultural blindness, yes. It, it is precisely that unwillingness to see or the incapacity to see, to see yeah, that I'm right. talking about. Yeah. Right. And I guess that's the question. Is it, I don't know if what's the right word, malicious or willful, or is it, um, is it that it's, it's something that people are incapable of seeing or that they don't want to deal with the truth of what it would mean if they were to see it? Well, I think that, I, I think there are two things are happening. On the one hand, there is a kind of willful denial. And mm-hmm. on the other hand, because there, have been willful, there has been willful denial over the centuries, it has become now a kind of incapacity for some as well. Right? Yeah. So, a quick example, because I really love this, um, this text where James Baldwin talks about, he says, you know, in the United States, when it comes to the question of race, 
and 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 United States, we look away. Mm. And he uses metaphor. We we look away. We we avert our eyes. We don't want to see it. Now, averting your eyes um, requires an act of will to look away. And so he's talking about a kind of willfully not knowing. And the argument I'm making then says there's a willful denial. And so I've used the word denial in the text. But there's also, as I said before, that over a period of time, when we continue to deny, then that denial turns into a kind of condition of truth. And so that becomes our reality. And so if we go into the classroom and we don't teach students because we eliminate those possibilities of racial readings, then students come out not knowing that there's something that they could know differently. And so they're not willfully denying in that moment. They just don't have the capacity, so to speak. Um, we've not given them the tools in that sense of incapacity to do that work. We've not given them that the racial literacy. We've not equipped them with that racial literacy to do the work. So it's not all willful, although a lot of it is. And if we think of um, systemic whiteness, which is where we began the conversation, if we think of systemic whiteness as as I said, something that's institutional. Let's just imagine and think about for a moment what is happening today when so many state legislatures are playing the role once again of institutions that are saying that we should not speak about race in mm-hmm. the classroom, that we should not address these issues uh, in the w- unless in a way that they propose. So here we have in this moment a living and lively example. And the word example should not be taken lightly. I mean, it is there and it is powerful and it is, and it's doing a lot of work. And it is saying in real time all the things that I describe in this book. And so, uh, you know, I wasn't thinking about those things then when I was writing the book, obviously, because it hadn't sort of gotten to that level. But here we are. And so we have once again this kind of institutional will to shape how people think long term and to recreate denial as a part of our cultural and epistemological history. And it's not something that will necessarily evolve away as we march toward progress, but that it's something that is a a constant sort of uh, give and take with people who want to read things for historical accuracy and and people who don't? It it is. Well, yes. The work of progress is work. Mm -hmm. The work of progress is not done. It's an ongoing set of efforts. And it requires vigilance. It requires patience. It requires the doing. And so in every area that we can, continue to do this work of doing, of doing the work, we must do so because we can see that that we're constantly facing the attempts to to shape how we think, what we do, and to create the conditions under which we can do them and not offer, let's say, a lot of our own free will, let us say. Well, I know we've just sort of characterized it as work, and I, I think people who are 
eager to get started doing that work, I can tell them one way of doing it that is going to feel more like pleasure, and that is to seek out your book, Black Shakespeare, Reading and Misreading Race. Professor Ian Smith, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here with you. And finally today, William Eginton and David Castillo, champions of the humanities and co-authors of the book, What Would Cervantes Do? Will they return to the 17th century for their last book or choose something more recent? Let's find out. Okay, we're going to start with you, David. This question comes from a listener who asks, what do you want your last book to be? This will be the last book you will ever read. You can either choose one that exists or describe one that has not yet been written. It's a great question. Let me start with a little background. Uh, during my okay. tenure uh, as, as UB Humanities Institute Director, we came up with uh, the motto, Humanities to the Rescue, as a mm. call for, mm-hmm. for humanists of all stripes to work together with our colleagues uh, in STEM disciplines and also with community agents to take on the big challenges of our time, from disinformation and the rise of authoritarianism, the crisis of democracy, climate change and climate justice, to the present, or we might call it the present future of big data and the risks of outsourcing human judgment to algorithms and other AI structures in critical areas such as uh, housing, education, policymaking, healthcare, the justice system. So what I would love to see is a book, possibly my last book, as a sort of retrospective describing how a resurgent humanistic education mm-hmm. came through big time to help <laughs> safeguard the future. Um, mm, so a lot, you know, humanity to the rescue, uh, mm-hmm. done, checkmark. <laughs> how about a book called How Cervantes Saved the World, the post post truth era? <laughs> <laughs> that that might be uh, that'd be good. Bill's yeah. last book. Yeah. Right, Bill? Very good. <laughs> okay. I love it. Bill, how about you? So for me, you know, as I said, when we chatted before, uh, did the question mean a sort of uh, proverbial book on a desert island that you could read over and over again because it's the only book you have with you, or it's the last right. book in the very literal sense, you read it and then you die, and you clarified you really thought it was a second meaning, yes. so that this is a book that in some ways is the end of reading for you. And yes. given that, so, uh, you know, another of my authors that I spend a lot of time, in fact, my most recent book that I've just finished is going to be in part about this author coming out next year, is the Argentine uh, poet, really philosopher, but also short story writer, Jorge Luis Borges. Mm. Borges has a book called The Book of Sand that includes a story called The Book of Sand. And The Book of Sand, of course, is not an actual book. It is a book that Borges invented. Uh, And what this book is like, it's a a regular sized book. You can hold it in your hand, but every page is infinitely thin, which means that you can read a perfectly coherent story in it, but the minute you close that book, you have a 0% chance of ever finding where you were in the book uh, <laughs> again, and hence the book would never be over. So right. if, uh, if the, the idea of the question is I die after reading a book and let that book be the book of sand, and then I will have achieved immortality. You're taking a Scheherazade approach of let's prolong <laughs> this as long as possible. The 1001 and Arabian Nights, let's just keep telling stories and we will... Mm-hmm. We will prolong the inevitable as long as we can. There yeah, that, that's a bit of cheating there, Bill. A bit of cheating there. <laughs> You're wishing for immortality. Cheating in a good Borgesian way. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't know if I hope that it's my last book, but I hope along the way I get a chance to read your book about Borges, and I hope you'll come and join us to talk about it. I will guarantee that. So if you invite me, I'll be here next year, and we can talk about that book, too. 
Sounds good. Yeah, okay. And, and just uh, and uh, Bill and I have plans. I uh, started plans to write a book on Baltasar Garcia. The other, ah, the other author we yes. mentioned. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, the other yeah. sense of the word navigating. Yeah, right. To fill in listeners who might not have heard that interview, he is kind of a Machiavelli of the media, and he basically taught people how to use a, an age of disinformation for your own purposes. That's, That's right. a, good, a good description. Exactly right. Exactly yeah. right. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Well, Professor David Castillo and Professor Bill Eggington, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you, Jack. An absolute pleasure, pleasure, Jack. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Professor Ian Smith. Do check out his book, Black Shakespeare, Reading and Misreading Race, published by Cambridge University Press. I found that I have a lot to learn. As always, though, that is invigorating when it comes to Shakespeare. There's nothing that makes me enjoy learning more. And to William Eggington and David Castillo. Thanks for joining me as well. I'm my apologies to David if I called him David Castillo. I I think that slipped my mind that that was the pronunciation we settled upon, although I probably called him both David and David when he was here last year as well. Apologies all around. Our full conversation with those two is in the archive. We will be back next week, possibly with Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye. We're circling that one. We're going to be reading a bunch of her novels in the weeks and months to come, starting with her first and proceeding in order. The Bluest Eye is very good, one of her best. Not flawless, as she herself acknowledged, but truly worth reading and discussing. And we'll have one of Ani Ernaux's translators here. She's a delight. What's it like when you translate an author who goes on to win the Nobel Prize? We will hear from... The translator when she comes black cinema's miracle year of 1989 we're going to explore that with a pair of podcasters that's a fun episode too that's the year of do the right thing glory driving miss daisy and a few other films we'll discuss them all with our guests and how about the southern gothic oh yes you've been asking for that for a long time while well, we have an episode on the horizon with a poet who writes in that tradition and we have camus and the plague all good stuff for our listeners. It's shaping up to be a good spring and summer here on the History of Literature podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.